Did you just say let it rock? I said let it rock. <laughs> Why? That's what we do here. <laughs> no, it's not. It's not even, not even remotely resembling what we do here. Go ahead and take your speed up. your number one now. Runway 27, clear to land, green dot. Welcome to Oshkosh, guys. Hello and welcome back to The Green Dot, EAA's podcast for anyone and everyone who loves aviation. The Green Dot, sponsored by GE Aviation. My name is Hal Bryan. I'm one of your hosts. I'm also the senior editor at EAA for print and digital content and publications. Here on my left, it's... I'm Chris Henry. I'm the EA Museum Programs Coordinator. Way over there across the table. Tom Sharpentier, Government Relations Director. All right, gentlemen, we are uh, fortunate once again to have a guest with us here in the studio. Chris, uh, why don't you let us know who that is? Absolutely. As you guys know, we have a speaker series here at the museum uh, every third Thursday of the month. And this month, we are uh, really thrilled to have Jerry McLaughlin. Uh, Jerry is the Special Projects Coordinator at the National Museum of the Mighty Eighth Air Force uh, down in Savannah, Georgia, actually Pooler, Georgia. Uh, Jerry, welcome to the Green Dot and to EAA. Well, thank you. It's, it's always a pleasure to be here. Yeah, we, we were just laughing that you don't have a Georgia accent. So. Right. No, I'm, yes. I'm, I'm so, afraid your southern accent is terrible, <laughs> sir. I'm not buying it. Somewhere along the line, New York is involved. <laughs> Long Island, specifically? Long Island, yeah. yes. Yeah. you got to hit that G, right? Right, right. Yeah. Do it. I was trying not to do that very oh, hard. Oh, man, that ruins it. Oh. Embrace the G. <laughs> well, Jerry, tell us a little bit. I know we're going to get started talking about everything uh, around B-17s, but Tell us a little bit about yourself. How did you first become interested in World War II aviation? Well, it, was, it, it starts on a sad note. Um, my uh, uncle was a navigator in the 435th Troop Carrier Group. and was shot down and killed in MIA until 1947. On, he was shot down and killed on D-Day and, and MIA until 1947. So it was a constant, where I grew up, it was a constant aviation and World War II was you know, a, a part of, of what went, when, uh, went on in our family. And then in the sixth grade, I read 30 Seconds Over Tokyo. And uh, for whatever, that really, that really clicked with me. And uh, I'm a historian by nature, and then I'm a historian by uh, education. And uh, military history clack, crapped in. And uh, next thing you know, uh, uh, it was uh, well, maybe six months after I retired. Uh, I, in Savannah, where Long Island is is, uh, is noticed, um, uh, I was offered a, uh, a volunteer position at uh, Mighty Eighth in the archives as an archivist, and it was wonderful. And uh, all of a sudden, the one day the uh, CEO came in and sat down and talked to me for about forty five minutes, and. Uh, I kept thinking, this sounds like a job interview. You know, I'm, I'm, I'm a volunteer archivist. Well, it was a job interview. <laughs> they needed somebody to go up and get the B-17, which is now called the City of Savannah, uh, up in, uh, uh, in Washington. And uh, so uh, I went from uh, a guy that was uh, listening to adults talk about World War II aviation to reading a book that got me really started to all of a sudden being part of the game, it was uh, it was it was an interesting an interesting progression. Now and, you help you help find what happened. Uh, that was your uncle that was lost in the C forty seven. Yes, yes. And didn't you help find out what happened to him? Or well, nobody ever knew what happened from him. in nineteen forty eight. My grandmother got a telegram and said uh, your son's buried in Belgium. Uh, what do you want to do with him? Belgium. Why was he in Belgium? Gosh. And uh, uh, what had happened was uh, um, there had been a major screw up. Uh, in notifications, and uh, after a year and a half, uh, after I moved to Washington, after a year and a half of research, I opened up a file, 
And on the top of the file was a thing, a letter directly to my grandmother saying, Dear Mrs. Sullivan, here's what happened to your son. And it was three, uh, the original in three copies, and it was never signed. Somebody typed it and put it in the file. Oh, my gosh. And, and I'm sitting there looking at it. It was quite an emotional experience. All she wanted, all she wanted was that letter, and it was uh, dated 1947. And uh, she died in 1960 and never, never knew what happened to him. Wow. And so I, I wrote a book about it. I, got, I, I, I tell the story like I'm telling it to you to so many people. They said, you got to write a book about that. So I did. Uh, D-Day plus 60 years. And uh, now that it's D-Day plus 75, all of a sudden it's popping up everywhere. Wow. So uh, it was, it was, that was the, kind of the beginning of all of my, my, uh, my work with the World War II aviation. That's absolutely incredible. Now, now Jerry, you mentioned you started uh, your volunteer position with the museum after you retired. What uh, what was your career prior to that? I worked for the federal government for the Central Intelligence Agency, and I was a. I tell everybody, you know, the Central Intelligence Agency needs janitors too. You know, <laughs> somebody's got to do that. Um, no, I I, uh, I was a training designer, and uh, really? for many years I ran the instructor development program. Um, they have some interesting instructors there. Wow, I and, can only uh, imagine. So, so it was uh, it was it was a good career. I loved it. That's just wow. That that's especially fascinating. I've got a little bit of law enforcement in my career background, and and would be fascinated to hear more about uh, the training aspects. One. Do you guys one serve day, beer so. here? We could sit here. Ty. <laughs> <laughs> you know, we're, Milwaukee's not that far away. So. Oh, well, this is Wisconsin. Yeah. You're you're issued beer when yeah. you cross the border. <laughs> I choose so. Schlitz because. Uh, it's the beer that made Milwaukee famous. So <laughs> he said, "He said beer, Chris." <laughs> anyway, wow. Well, that's uh, that's fascinating stuff. So uh, good stuff for another uh, another time. And as you said, maybe maybe a few beer stories. Okay, there. okay. So there might be a few people uh, wondering just a little bit about the. Uh, you know, there's there's many uh, uh, air museums and military history museums out there, and uh, what what makes the uh, the mighty Eighth Air Force Museum uh, so special, and why is it in Savannah? Well, the, I'll, I'll start with the last question. It's in Savannah because, the, for whatever reason, that is where the 8th Air Force was formed, in what is now a, a building that is now the uh, uh, home of the uh, 100, uh, 135th chapter of, of the American Legion Post 135. It was, uh, at that time, a Air National Guard uh, location. And Hunter Army Airfield was there, and there was like nine people in the 8th Air Force when it was formed in 1942, right after the war started, about eight, eight months after Pearl Harbor. And uh, so it just, um, it went from, it had uh, no airplanes and nine people. And it, it, went, it went from what we all know today is, you know, the famous, the famous 8th Air Force, and it's still around down at Barksdale Air Force Base. That's, a, that's amazing. I'd never be honest to say I never really had given thought about like a, a group like that having a specific sort of founding moment and founding uh, and founding location as you say you, we look at it as a as a pillar of history and not as a thing that started in a room. it was it was kind nine, of like us guys. sitting around this table wow you know with uh, with a, a brigadier general and a, a couple of colonels and uh, a clerk okay I nominate Ty to be general uh, we got five of us uh, I get what, to be LeMay yeah, the, the he didn't come till later yeah. he was a second lieutenant at the time what's the what's the next Air Force number that's available yeah, yeah. <laughs> well so you can actually go into and I did while I was down there when I spoke down at your museum um, you can actually go into the building uh, where the 8th Air Force was formed Yes. You know, you're, yes. You're, it, there's a restaurant and stuff in there, and but you can actually see the building. Well, the American Legion meets in that in that uh, room that, every yeah, month. It's wild. To this I day, mean, that's incredible. There's a historical marker out front and everything, yeah. 
Well, here at EAA, we have the basement where EAA was founded, except it's on the second floor now. Uh, yeah, That's true. Exactly. Yes. Yeah, not, not many places could boast a basement upstairs. <laughs> yeah. Well, we get a lot of snow. <laughs> <laughs> there, is, there is that. So, uh, so Jerry, at the museum, you've got a you got a B seventeen at the the sort of the centerpiece of it, uh, as I'm understanding, and I I haven't uh, yet made a trip down there. I'm ashamed to admit. But uh, before we get deep into the story of that particular airplane, um, can you tell us sort of about the rest of the museum? What uh... The museum um, was uh, built in 1996, and it uh, had several generals, all of whom had been commanders of the 8th Air Force, involved. And the idea was to tell the story of the people who were in the 8th Air Force. And the airplanes would be, that are there, would be secondary. And in fact, the only airplane, full airplane in the museum is RB-17, and that didn't happen until 2009. Uh, a great deal of work went into, uh, in 1996, there was a lot of people around that had served in the 8th Air Force, and a lot of time went into interviewing them and uh, bringing people in to uh, um, coordinate stories of units. Uh, a lot of units had uh, many, many people that had served there in World War II and afterwards, um, but mainly they were they were emphasizing World War II, and uh, these units were interviewed uh, en masse, if you, if, if you will. And uh, so there is a great deal of material that is, uh, unless you are uh, interested in history, uh, it's there. And someday somebody will want it, or they you know, read about their grandfather sure. or something like that. But most, many, many, almost all of the units have some kind of uh, representation. They're talking about the World War II units, right. representation through there. There is um, some uh, uh, material post World War II. Uh, a little bit about Korea. Uh, um, the, it, the the emphasis though is is, is World War II, and uh, the B seventeen, of course, is the symbol. Uh, the first time I went there, I, I walked through the museum, and I didn't I didn't live there then. I was I was there at a wedding, and and I walked through the museum, and I walked into the what they call a combat gallery, which I found out later on was designed exactly uh, to fit a B-17, <laughs> and I, I I met the uh, Gen General Buck Schuler who said he designed the room, and I said, it's about a foot too short on each side. <laughs> he didn't give me any, and he, he says that all the time. He says, I apologize to Jerry that the, <laughs> we didn't put an extra foot on this. But the, the museum uh, combat gallery was designed specifically to put a uh, B-17 in there as the center of the uh, museum. Well, there's certainly no airplane more purely evocative of the but The first time I walked into right. the thing, I said, where's the B-17? Right. You know, little did I know. Yeah. Uh, but <laughs> it, that, it was, it was uh, the center. Now, is the museum uh, supported by or, or officially affiliated with DOD or the Air Force? Uh, no, it, it's, okay. uh, um, it's a uh, private institution, and uh, there's a, uh, a great deal of support um, from the 8th Air Force community. Sure. Um, uh, sadly, uh, as the, there aren't that many veterans left from World War II, and so it's not like it used to be you'd have a group of World War II veterans there every day. And we'd be out next to the B-17, you know, introducing them. They'd be telling us stories about it. But right. that doesn't happen that much anymore. Man, with the passage of time. Yeah. So you were starting to tell us um, before we went on mic here about um, uh, kind of the interesting story about how the museum acquired the B-17. Do you want to go through the brief version of that real quick? <laughs> well, there's or 19 versions. Absolutely. It's like 19 yeah. versions. I'll give you the bottom line. Uh, <laughs> the the, the 
there was one B-17 left with the Smithsonian. One. That was uh, no, not. It was in storage. And, and by the way, we have a picture of it. Sl- it's, it's parked partially underneath the uh, space shuttle Enterprise. That's oh, wow. that's how big the space shuttle Enterprise is. <laughs> Isn't that um, and uh, uh, there was this one B-17 left, and everybody that was in the B-17 world was negotiating for it. So we put our, you know, our envelope, mailed it up there, and, and uh, so we were on the list, but we, we don't think we were very high. And then President Bush came down there um, to campaign for a local Republican congressman, and they had the event at the museum. And the uh, CEO of the museum uh, was told he had three minutes, three or five minutes, whatever it is, with the president. So he said, okay, I'm just going to go for it. And the uh, um, president came over and he said, how are you doing, sir? And, and, he, and he said, what can I do for you? And, and <laughs> what he said, what you, I need a B-17 right over there. Right over and so the president turned around to all of the people behind him and said, you, he said, get this guy a B-17. The guy said, yes, sir. And everybody went, oh, yeah, yeah, that's going to happen. Well, three days later, the phone rang. We have a B-17 for you. This is from the Smithsonian. <laughs> Dick Daso, who was... Uh, um, oh, yeah, I know Dick. Okay, yeah, okay well, Dick Daso called and said, uh, when, can you, when can you come up and get it? <laughs> and so all of a sudden, that's why my interview was so so quick. All of a sudden, <laughs> they said, who's going to go up there and get it? And, uh, geez, McLaughlin's back there. He used, he used to work in Washington, and he actually knows people up there. So, wow. so I, went up to, I went up to get it, brought it home. <laughs> and, and so when you had that, uh, that discussion turned to job interview... Did you know at that point that the museum was was about to acquire the B seventeen? Absolutely not. Wow, I was I was working in the archives, and you know it's another world. You're in the back there, and uh, uh, um, no, absolutely not. That is just amazing. And uh, and what year was this? This was that was two. It was well. It was, he was talking to me in so two thousand nine, like 2009. just before Christmas. Okay, and we so, went up there, and uh, we were there for eight or nine days, oh. getting it taken apart. So that would have been Bush uh, forty three then. Yes, George W. Bush. Wow. That's that's remarkable. Not many people get a chance. You know, you get your three minutes with the president. Right. Not many people have the presence of mind uh, to, to number one to sort of think of what they want, but also the fact that he opened with "What can I do for you?" Yes, yeah. yes. That's, that's and the really other thing was, I mean, I, I worked in Washington for many many years, and yeah. you know, the boss always turns around to one of the underlings and says, "Get this done." They go, "Yes, sir. Yes, sir." And then you know, nobody ever hears about it again. And, and all of a sudden, a B seventeen. When can you come and get it? Yeah. We had no plan. We had no plan because we we figured it was a you know. What it was kind of a hail mary, but right, that's, right, you bet. That's yeah. fantastic. My gosh, wow, excellent. Now you talk. Now the aircraft, uh, as it sits today and as it's restored, it's restored to honor a B seventeen called City of Savannah. Can you tell us a little bit about the real, you know, the original City of Savannah and and how you guys, you know, decided that that was the the route you wanted to go? Okay, it's an interesting story how the how the the name came up uh, in. 1943 and 1944, the vast majority of the B-17s that went to uh, England uh, flew out of Hunter Field in, uh, uh, in Savannah. And what happened was the, the, the planes would be flown in from the West Coast, and uh, the, they'd just be lined up. And the crews would take their final crew training down in Tampa, Florida. The old saying that one a day in Tampa Bay, as the boys were learning <laughs> how to fly. And uh, so they, they, the crews would come up and uh, as they finished their classes and they'd say, okay, lieutenant number one, that's your airplane. Lieutenant number two, that's your airplane. And uh, they would just pick their airplane and go. And uh, um, they realized that they were getting to the 5,000th airplane. 
This is in December of 1944. And so as the planes came down the, the line, they painted on one of them uh, City of Savannah because the city of Savannah, this will blow you by, the city of Savannah people chipped in $500,000 and that paid for the entire airplane and the tra training of the 10 crewmen. I bet $500,000 wouldn't pay for the landing gear of <laughs> yeah. a B-52. You know? Yeah, no kidding. And so the, 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 uh, they, and then another famous story was of all of the, the, the local Savannians, they roll it out and they're gonna take a picture of the crew standing in front of the airplane and all of a sudden somebody says, Aren't there two ends in Savannah? <laughs> oh, no. Whoever had painted it painted it wrong, <laughs> and they had to roll it out of the way, get another airplane, paint the whole thing over again. I, there was some buck sergeant who was a private on KP the next morning after oh, that, my God. and and that, so that that's always our standard joke. You know, you look at the planers. Aren't there two ends in Savannah? That's <laughs> fantastic. Now you mentioned uh, this being number five thousand. Was that the five thousandth to go through that? particular through hunter field. field through hunter field because there was the the b17 five grand right was the yes, wasn't 5, that, built. that was yeah. the 5000th built yeah. and of course that one was covered with signatures and everything but i've always been fascinated by that concept of doing those fundraising drives and you, you hear about that once in a great while back then where where people in a city will will donate money and then and uh and well, it, they had learned um, in the article that we read from the newspaper, they had learned that, that um, $500,000 paid for, uh, you know, the entire crew training and the airplane. And so that, they raised the 500000 and that was, that was the airplane. That airplane flew to Iceland. The, the crew flew it to Iceland, lost an engine, and were broken up and flew over. Uh, they spread them out through other airplanes, and they were shot down in their 13th mission uh, right near the end of the war. And uh, one of them was killed, and uh, um, the others, it was a real bad time. They were, they were really treated awful. And uh, the airplane went to the 487th uh, bomb group and never flew a mission. Really? Uh, they had, and and I, I talked to a mechanic, a guy who had been a mechanic in the 487th, and he said he, he was almost giving a lecture on American productivity. He said in the last four months of the war, when airplanes came back that were shot up, they just scrapped them. They never fixed them. He said when the war started, he had been there for the entire time. He said they would be up for 24 hours just getting one airplane. And he said it came back, shot up in, in 1944. They had so many spares, including the city of Savannah, uh, wow. that they just, they just rolled the one that was shot up out of the way. Well, when you, you hear about places like Willow Run and, and you know, B-24 is coming out, yeah. was it one in every hour, like every hour basically, yeah. or even a little less than that, that's that's just almost unfathomable, you know. And they in were making era, they were making B seventeens at the very end. They were cranking them at, in in Seattle, of course, Boeing. Sure. And then in San Diego and Long Beach. Ours was the airplane that we have now was built in Long Beach, and uh, they were. Uh, uh, it was just an, an unbelievable. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> and they were building aircraft carriers, and they were building uh, bombers yeah. and fighters. It was just amazing what they were doing. I always like the story of the German tank commander who says that the uh, the. Tiger tank was better than 10 American Shermans. He says, but the problem is you Americans always had 11. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, definitely. Um, so when you brought this airplane down, uh, so how did, how did you actually get it down from Washington? Uh, I, I, did you just take a big flatbed up there and uh, haul it down? Or, uh... no, another, another interesting story. Uh, um, we hired a company uh, made up entirely of retired Navy aviation chiefs, and these guys could do anything with airplanes. 
and there was 10 of them. And uh, so I went up there with them uh, to, uh, uh, to Virginia, and I said I had to catch up on my cursing. They were way, way ahead of me. <laughs> <laughs> I had spent too much time in white-collar positions <laughs> to work with these guys. And uh, they totally took the airplane apart. It ended up on six flatbeds. Wow. Engines on one, you know, wings on, on another, uh, the fuselage, of course, on one. And w one of the stories I love to tell about this is we, we said they recommended we hire this guy who would get us the licenses needed to drive down for the different states. Every state required a written document for every truck. Oh my gosh. So in all those states with the six trucks, and we had to get off twice because the fuselage piece was so high, there were bridges that it, it, it couldn't go underneath. And uh, this was $10,000, and we went, $10,000? You know, that's absurd. Well, it was the best $10,000 we ever, we ever spent. Every place we went, there was a police car, a police cars waiting for us and everything. And it was just, the, 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 this guy was magic. It was so complicated to get one truck through one state. Right, much less. Well, you know, multiple states yeah, and multiple trucks. trucks. And, uh, you know, the, the guy's my hero. I don't know how he learned that, <laughs> the skills to do that, but he was, uh, and we brought it back, and then they, uh, we took it piece by piece into the, the building, I told you, the combat gallery, and they reassembled it. And the, uh, one of the big problems was that, as I mentioned before, they had all that guano in it. And uh, the, you know, we said it, it can't go into the it can't go into the, the museum with the bird poop in it. And <laughs> and uh, the, the, there's a, a an elite group of the volunteers, the people that got the bird poop out before we. <laughs> they, they get a special badge for the. the, the, the <laughs> My gosh, that would not be not be the most pleasant work. No. So tell us a little bit more about the condition that it was in. Uh, so it was full of bird poop, and I'm assuming that uh, that it, it wasn't otherwise uh, spotless and immaculate either. Well, two, we had two big problems in addition to the to the bird poop. Uh, on the outside, they had, uh, and Chris has seen the pictures of it, uh, they had covered it with a, uh, what was like 1990s saran wrap on the outside to keep it, you know, uh, Healthy on the inside, if right. you will, and to, and for the so the aluminum would be okay uh, over long haul. And what happened was, uh, I don't know if we were the or they were the first ones to use this material, but it adhered to the airplane. Oh no! So the outside was covered with this stuff, and then because they had taken the tail off and never filled, co covered the hole, the inside was covered with the the bird poop. And also, uh, we didn't realize until we got the bird poop out um, that the airplane had spent almost 10 years as a fire bomber at the end of its flying career. And uh, whatever the chemicals were that were inside, uh, you know, what they, what they dropped uh, from the bomb bay back, the walls of the airplane were just coated with this crap. And wow. it was it, even more than the bird poop, it, uh, uh, it had eaten into the metal. And the idea was we were going to have the uh, interior of the airplane just bare metal because that's what the original city of Savannah was like. And we looked at it. We, we couldn't do it. Uh, and so we had to, we painted it uh, good old 1944 olive drab. Uh, but it was, uh, uh, it was unbelievable. We, 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 we had a muse uh, uh, an airplane inside a museum. How do you paint that? You know, you can't. <laughs> it, it's you know, inside of a working museum. So how, how did you paint it? You just... Cover a section at a time, and two words: Gulfstream Corporation. Okay, <laughs> uh, they did. Uh, it was an unbelievable task that they did. We went over and and talked to them about how do you paint airplanes, still figuring we would do it, 
And the guy that was painting the airplane that we were at, uh, that the management guy had brought us over there, he said, uh, what, what are you going to do? Tell me exactly what you're going to do. And we told him, he said, oh, I got to do that. <laughs> and uh, so he and his son uh, and, and another painter uh, came over and did the, uh, uh, it, it took us, they did uh, three different renditions, you know, uh, and, and uh, they would work for four hours after their work over at uh, um, Gulfstream for the day. But it took us two hours to set up before, and all this had to be done while there were no people in the museum. And so we, we would set up for two hours, they would come and paint for four, and then it would take us another two hours to take it all down. Wow. And these guys did a fantastic job. Uh, we said that uh, uh, the Sistine Chapel had Michelangelo, and the Louvre had uh, uh, Rembrandt, and we had Tony and Frank. <laughs> Tony and Frank. <laughs> <laughs> two, two names who didn't go as quite as far, but as far as, we, as, far as they, we're concerned, they were the best. It just sounds like a couple of guys from the old neighborhood, right? right. Yeah. 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 Hey, Tony and Frank, we yeah. got an airplane to from pay. From Oak what, Island. Yeah, what are you doing? Yeah. <laughs> what are you doing? That's amazing. Well, and yeah, actually, our, um, our local Gulfstream shop here in, uh, in Appleton's done some great work for EAA. I believe they've done our tri-motor. Yeah. Uh, did they, have they done work on our B-17? I can't remember. Yeah, I don't, I didn't think so. I know the Ford for sure. Maybe they did the 17 at one point. And a couple of our young Eagles yeah. planes uh, yeah. have, have yeah. gone through their, their paint shop, I think too. they maybe did some work on the 17. Yeah. Yeah, yeah they're, they're great supporters. Here's a special message for all you Green Dot podcast listeners. Hello, this is Jack Pelton, the chairman of the board and CEO of EAA. Today, I'm asking you to make a year-end gift to the EA All-Member Annual Fund for Excellence campaign. It's only through your generous support that EA can open the doors to aviation for young and old alike. With nearly 250,000 members worldwide, Gifts of all levels are important to meeting our $1.2 million goal. Sharing the spirit of aviation during the season of giving by making a donation opens endless possibilities for the next generation. The impact of your gift is far-reaching and makes a difference right away by underwriting museum educational programs including school tours, safety and advocacy initiatives, resources for EA chapters, and experimental amateur-built home builders. Air Academy and Sport Pilot Academy programs, the Woman Soar, You Soar experience, programs that nurture the next generation of aviators, flight experiences in a variety of historic aircraft, sustaining and improving our beautiful campus and facilities that preserve, curate, and promote aviation. Your decision to make a year-end gift makes it all happen. Please make your $25, $50, $100, or a generously more tax-deductible donation today online at eaa.org backslash annual fund or by mail. Thank you for your support. And now, back to the Green Dot Podcast. So we already talked a little bit about, uh, about painting the airplane and, uh, and some of the other uh, challenges there. Um, how about sourcing parts? Um, you know, B-17 parts are becoming a little bit more scarce these days. I know you're doing a static rather than a flyer, so that makes it a little easier. But uh, uh, do you have any interesting stories from, uh, from hunting down uh, parts for your restoration? Um, a couple. <laughs> One of the things is that we, we, we started and our motto was we don't know what we don't know. And we were, that, the honesty of that really helped us and hindered us. So everybody wanted to take advantage of it because we said, and uh, as my 
Jim Grismer, who became my, my partner on this, as Jim said, we didn't say we were dumb. We just said we didn't know what we didn't know. <laughs> so we had, a, we had a lot of people that said, oh, hey, I got parts. I can do this. I can do that for you and everything. And the parts, um, you brought up a very good point because we weren't a flyer that we could spend money, the little money we had, we could spend it on things to make the airplane look good. And for instance, the big, the big thing on parts was we are going to be very shortly be the only B-17 in the world, in the world, that has three working power turrets that we show off to the public. Wow. And the, the last parts challenge has been getting, nobody puts a upper turret in because it's very, you gotta be 19 years old and skinny to fit around <laughs> uh, a, uh, uh, you know, an upper turret, and none of us are 19 and none of us are skinny. So uh, um, that, that was, because nobody wants an upper turret, there are no parts for them. There's no demand for them. And so it was a real challenge. And one of the things that I, uh, really, it, it's kind of what Chris and I bet this was what was going on, we, when we, we couldn't get parts, we said, what are we going to do? And one of the students that we had working for us um, work, it works for the uh, Savannah Tech. He said, um, what about 3D printing? He had taken a course on how to do the software for 3D printing. Right. So uh, one of the guys that worked for Gulfstream said, give me a minute, give me a minute. I'll go make a phone call. He made a phone <laughs> call. He called the guys that did 3D printing at uh, Gulfstream. And like, for instance, one of the things that we had, uh, the, the front of the airplane, the, in, in the cockpit of the airplane, there was uh, um, only one yoke. And so th this guy took the yoke over to Gulfstream and said, can you make us another one of these as the, as the you know, a kind of introduction to right. what we were doing. So when he brought it back, I, we didn't, I mean, I'm a history major. 3D printing is, you know, I, <laughs> duh. <laughs> and and uh, he brought, uh, it, a week later, he bring, comes back with the, uh, uh, this new part, this uh, um, yoke, and it was complete down to somebody had carved their initials in the original one, and the initials were in the one that came back. <laughs> oh, my gosh. <laughs> so we, we have incredible. two yokes on the front of the airplane, and JW is, uh, <laughs> same is, is, is in the same position on both of them. And we, 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 a lot of the parts are, are out there because they were general, like the engine parts and all of that stuff. The, those engines are still in every DC-3 that's flying around here. And the, the uh, um, it was, it, you know, literally you get them off eBay, and uh, but there are a lot of uh, uh, aircraft parts people that search. That's that's what they do. Yeah. And 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 we were very lucky to to get this stuff. The, the challenge being like our last turret because nobody else nobody else does right. them. That's really remarkable. Now now Chris RB seventeen aluminum overcast. We have a powered working ball turret, but mm -hmm. is that the only powered turret that, that functions yeah. on ours? Currently, that's the only one that works on ours. So. Uh, the chin turret, uh, I think, is on. We've talked about doing the chin turret yeah. at some point. Yeah. The problem is, is, is you know, it's a, it's an operational airplane, so that becomes sort of a second uh, right. thing due to keeping it flying and keeping it on tour. Right. Um, you know, and then our top turret, of course, uh, is just the dome because of the ride program. You can't get anybody, right. like you said, you can't get anybody around that turret with all the structure in it and right. everything. Right, right. And it's, you get such an incredible view from up there. Yeah, that it's a, yeah. You know, for as you said, for a working airplane, I think it's a very reasonable and appropriate compromise. Well, especially you know, we were, we've been flying a lot of veterans. I mean, that'd be really tough trying to get veterans through that right. turret if the turret yeah. was still there. You know, but uh, but yeah, no, that's fantastic. If you weigh more than one hundred thirty-five pounds, it's really tough to get around that. Thing. Oh yeah, forget it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, now we met 
because of, of parts. I mean, me and Jerry met because right. of parts, actually. We, uh, uh, it's a, another turret story. We, uh, well, of course, had no turret. I told you they took the, our turret off, and uh, uh, it's in the American History Museum. So we, when we were looking around, we found a turret from a crash up in Alaska, and it was like th- maybe half of the, of the actual turret. And the Cheyenne turret, at the end, the last planes built, maybe the last six months, they had these Cheyenne turrets, they were called, and all the planes were built on the West Coast. They flew to Cheyenne, Wyoming, where the tail turret was taken off. This new model was put on, and then it was flown to Hunter. Okay. And uh, so, whatever this Cheyenne thing was, <laughs> it was, it was a political thing or whatever, it was just for the last six months. Those were the only planes that, that had the Cheyenne turret. And uh, it was, uh, oh, I don't know uh, um, how, how many planes it was. But anyway, the company went out of business, and we couldn't get plans to build one. Just they weren't available. So Chris had a whole one at, uh, uh, at, with, his, with his folks, but it was, uh, had a lot of corrosion in it. So Chris and I cut a deal. And uh, he gave me, they, we, we actually, went, we went and got it, brought it back. We took their turret apart, totally apart. We did all the corrosion work for them. And what we did was we made templates out of every single part. And, oh, and, and our guys built the, the tail turret on the city of Savannah at the Mighty Eighth Air Force Museum was built 100, well, 98.5% by, uh, by the guys uh, on the project, the, the metal mechanics. And we put in one uh, brace from the Alaska turret, just so we can say it was an original turret. <laughs> That's uh, fantastic. But, but it, it, it's, uh, if you get to come see it, you, you have to look at that tail turret. It's 100%, you know, it was built right there in the building. Now, now Chris, this one that you had, um, this was before you worked at EAA. It was before I worked now, here. It was, was on the, the Grissom Air Museum. Okay, so it wasn't just at home in your basement. <laughs> no, no, I didn't have it. We missed that point, which also would not surprise me. <laughs> yeah. um, weirdly enough, when I was a kid... Um, we had uh, a good friend of the family was uh, was was a, an historian. He went on to be the uh, base historian at Edwards Air Force Base for many many years. Oh wow! And uh, avid writer and researcher, and and now he uh, he comes and volunteers or writes freelance for us during Air Venture every year. So kind of a full circle thing. Anyway, he always he was a wreck hunter and he always had parts, but uh, didn't have a lot of room at home. And uh, we had a place with a big unfinished uh, attic area and. And uh, so I absolutely loved it as a kid because I had, I had a B seventeen chin turret uh, oh. sitting in my attic, had uh, like a throttle quadrant and center section, sort of like maybe about a third of sort of a cockpit out of a privateer. So wow. I had throttles wow. that I could move, and I you know kind of made my own yoke out of old PVC and stuff like that. A um, bunch of armored glass from B twenty five. So this stuff was just sitting upstairs, and I found it as a uh, as a postscript. I found out. 40 plus years later, I saw that chin turret again when it flew to Oshkosh uh, on uh, uh, Thunderbird. No kidding. Yeah, Lone Star. Yeah. yeah. Lone Star. Yeah. Wow. So that's uh, so this thing I used to, you know, sort of <laughs> sit in and move it around and put broom handles in it for guns and stuff <laughs> like that. And uh, as, a, as a little kid. So. So it would not have surprised me had you had this uh, <laughs> yeah, at home, yeah. but but then again, it was kind of corroded, so it may not have been up to the well, Chris Henry yeah, Home Museum yeah. standards. It was at my house at one point. Well, of course <laughs> <Yeah>. it was. <laughs> so anyway, forgive that uh, digression there, but just to just proof that we're our all uh, friends uh, to, to show similar things to that, our chin turret 
before we got it, spent 15 years going to child's parties, and the kids would get in and make the guns go up and down and left. Really? Fred the turret guy. Fred Beezer. <laughs> Fred <laughs> the turret guy? Fred Beezer is known throughout the United States and in Europe as Fred the turret guy. Yeah. If you got a question about a uh, World War II turret, you call Fred the turret guy. This is incredible. And, and Fred Does he know Tony and Frank? Is he <laughs> <does> <laughs> run around together? <laughs> You got Tony, you got Frank, yeah, you got yeah, Tommy yeah, two yeah, times, yeah, and Fred the turret guy. Yeah. I is, think, you know, I think Billy, that was our cool. intern on the 17, is yeah. uh, friends with Fred. I, I, really? I, I think that's the same guy, yeah. yeah. So yeah, Fred the turret Fred guy the turret put guy. together multiple turrets and made a business out of going to the homes of wealthy children when they, you know, <laughs> they'd have a party. And, uh, you know, the, the big thing in the area that he lived in was, oh, have you had Fred the Turret guy at your kid's wow. birthday party? You know, and all the kids would write. And so for years and years, you know, we'd say, gee, where are we going to find a chin turret? Well, go to the nearest kid's party. There's, <laughs> there's always one floating around there. Yeah. That yeah. is yeah. absolutely See, in my family, we had Vinny the Tire Man, but he did something <laughs> completely different. Yeah. <laughs> Fred the Turret guy is a whole different yeah. thing. <laughs> Oh my God, Chris! I always love your uh, your your annual uh, air venture tradition of uh, of bringing the ball turret over <laughs> yeah. to the display yeah. and uh, on the grounds, you know, yeah. where you where you throw the ball turret in the back of a pickup truck. <laughs> yes, so yes. you got a pickup truck with this, uh, you know, sperry yes. ball turret with the gun, <laughs> yeah. Yeah, the fifty cals uh, yeah. covering the rear. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> nobody this. messes with us on the highway yeah. that day. That's <laughs> the safest pickup truck in the world. Yes, yes. <laughs> we, uh, uh, I, I keep finding stories that apply to this stuff. With with our ball turret, uh, it was the one that was used in the Memphis Bell, the movie The Memphis Bell. Oh, okay. And, uh, and we had to go out to California to get it. And they drove it across country from California to Savannah with the turret on the back. I didn't know it when they went out there. They brought two gun barrels and put it on the turret on the back of the truck. <laughs> and they said, 10,000 cops between California and Savannah. <laughs> so what's interesting about your ball turret is if you remember in the movie, uh, the movie Memphis Bell, uh, the guy who plays the ball turret gunner was sort of a, a ladies' man, and he has 1940s pinups on the ammo cans in the airplane. You can clearly see them in the movie. But what's interesting is when you go down to there, those ammo cans came with yours. Right, right. And they're still there. Like, we we, we restored them. them so they're on there. Yeah. Yeah, oh, that's it's fantastic. really neat. You know, a little piece of uh, a little piece of cinema history. Yeah, a little, too. little movie history tossed yeah. in. I always tell people, and they go, "See this girl here? She's somebody's great grandmother." Uh, yeah, <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. It takes the wind right out of your sails. <laughs> <Yeah. laughs> That's, that's amazing. <laughs> so, do you have any more stories of the uh, of the restoration? Uh, you know, in particular, any any um, I, I guess aside from uh, from our turret guy, any uh, <laughs> any other personalities that have um, that, that have uh, you know graced this uh, restoration or anything like that? Several, several. and 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 uh, it was just I was talking to. I'm it's I'm glad you asked that question. I was talking to one of the old timers with us. Um, and, and he was saying that the stories that he tells, and, and, and there are two that we agreed with, with the, the biggest stories. And uh, one's sad, one's uh, uh, very funny. And so I'll tell you the sad one first. Uh, I was in my office, and uh, um, one of the guys came in just at closing time at the museum. He says, we got something outside here. You need to come out. And uh, sitting underneath the airplane was a guy crying, uh, World War II era veteran you know and he, and he's you could tell and and he was crying and his wife's come on honey we got to leave we got to leave and we had talked at one time to a psychologist who had just been going through there and he asked us how do you deal with people that uh, you know come in and get emotional about this and we didn't really have any <laughs> we don't have you know we didn't have a policy we just were nice to them and so he gave us some hints so three of us sat down with this guy the guy was on the floor he, he couldn't stand 
And three of us sat down with him, and, and, and his wife sat down, and we started to talk, and he had never told her anything about the war. And it turned out it was the 71st anniversary of when he had been shot down, and he was the only survivor. Oh, my gosh. And he had become a POW for the rest of the war. And, and, and he had, she said to us, you know, he had said, I have to go to, to see this B-17. And she said, why? You know, he had never mentioned, he was one of the guys that never talked about the war. And, and it just came out, and the guy was crying, and, and, and uh, he was so grateful all of a sudden that he unloaded this. But it was the 70th anniversary. He was 18 years old, he was the tail gunner, and he was the only survivor. Oh my gosh. So, I mean, that's, that's, that, that, that really stayed with us for a while. Absolutely. Well, that's, that, that's why you get out of bed every morning is to, yeah. is to, uh, is to honor and, and appreciate and, and, and give people an outlet and an avenue for that. And then, of course, it was, to teach it the was, subsequent it generations. Was moving. It was moving to everybody who was there. It's so easy to, uh, all of us look back on that generation and, and that era. Uh, with with reverence, with affection, we look on them as heroes. We look at you know we look back on the airplanes and the hardware, and, and we love that. It is sometimes though easy to forget the emotional cost, right. and you know that uh, that you know these these kids were heroes. They were standing tall and with square jaws and everything else. But but they're also people those that are left with us today that that can be moved to tears just by. Just by being up next to one of these airplanes again. It had been, you know, 65, 70 years that this guy had, you know, been sitting on this. My gosh. And then I'll tell you, the other story has a a, a, a little lighter. Um, Again, I'm sitting in my office. Somebody comes in and says, uh, if if anybody, if a World War II veteran, particularly an 8th Air Force veteran, visits the museum, they get in for free. They get, you know, a big pass so you know who they are and everything. And the guy comes in and he says, you got to talk to this guy. He's, He's a radio man. He wants to see the radio room which we are very proud of, uh, our radio room. So I said, okay, I come out, and I take him inside, and he sits down, and he's giving great feedback. Oh, this is terrific. Oh, this is, you guys did a terrific job. This is, you know, oh, just, and wonderful, a very outgoing guy. So we're leaving, we're leaving to go out the, the waste door, and, I, and I, I've got this form that we ask veterans to fill out. And I said, gee, could you fill it out? And he says, I'd rather not. He gets out of the airplane. So I follow him out, and, uh, Thank you. And shakes hands. He walks away, and I'm standing next to one of the guys. And he says, "That was kind of funny." All of a sudden, the guy comes back, and he says, "I could tell you were a little upset that I didn't want to sign your form." He says, uh, "Let me just tell you my story." He said, "He went over at near the end of the war. He's like he went over in February of '45, and he went over. He didn't even they, they weren't flying planes. <laughs> they had, like I told you, they had too many planes. Right. And so he went over on a ship with 1,500, you know, enlisted men." Gunners and stuff. Okay. So they get, he gets over there, and then he gets assigned to some bomb group, which we don't know. And uh, he gets uh, he's, he's a radio man, and he gets assigned as the, the, the guy that's – if any plane's going out and all of a sudden the radio man gets sick or something like that, he, he takes his place. So he flies two missions over a period of 30 days. And then something happens, and he gets in an argument with an officer. He's court-martialed. He's busted to private, and he goes off flight status. He goes – this is the most wonderful thing in the world. The war's going to end, and I'm okay. You know, I, I, I don't care if I go home as a private. You know, and uh, so he's just doing his thing, and uh, the war ends. And they start uh, every other day. An airplane goes home, and the crew is on it, and the seven senior ground crew. 
So he starts looking around and he says, whoa. He said, I'm going to be the guy that locks the door here. There's right. gonna, not, the not going to be anybody left. <laughs> so uh, he uh, sees on the manifest for one of the airplanes that it's going to go through Boston. And that's where he's from. So he goes and talks to the aircraft commander. And the guy, he's all excited about going home. He says, look, kid, here's the deal. I never leave the cockpit. If you're in the back of the airplane, I could care less. Talk to Sergeant so-and-so. <laughs> So he, he uh, the guy goes to talks to Sergeant so and so, and he he strongly implied that some cash might have changed hands. <laughs> and, and when the airplane leaves to go home, he's on it. <laughs> and so they land in Boston. He gets his duffel bag. He jumps off, waves to everybody, goes gets in a cab, goes to his parents' house. His father faints when the door opens, and uh, he goes inside. And then he looks at us and he says. And I've never talked to anybody in the Army since. I've been AWOL for 69 years. (laughs) (laughs) And that's why I'm not going to tell you. I'm not going to sign your paper and say what unit I'm in. So so then he goes walking away, and the guy with me says, you know, do you think that's BS? I said, who cares? What a great (laughs) great story. (laughs) So he was also probably the first person, the first commercial passenger out of B-17. He effectively bought a ticket. And and he he said something. I I didn't get the whole story, but he went to work for his father. And uh, he already had a social security number, so nobody was asking him, where's your discharge? Where's this? He's working for his old man. Jeez. And, uh, <laughs> but just the way you could tell that he had said, this wasn't the first time he'd said it, <laughs> I've been AWOL for 69 years. <laughs> 69 years. Wow. Well, that is incredible. Well, Jerry, we are uh, somewhat up against the clock here, so I uh, want to just take a minute and thank you very, very much for, for taking some time to join us, and thanks, of course, for being here on site to participate in the speaker series. That's uh, well. It was a pleasure. The pleasure was all mine. Oh, the, the the pleasure was all on uh, all on our side. I can I can promise you that. Um, very quickly, uh, any any big plans? Anything uh, on the horizon uh, that you want to talk about? What's next for the museum? Well, like I said, the, with us with the airplane, uh, the idea that we're going to be pretty soon have our upper turret online. That's going to be a big thing. That's excellent. And uh, the. Uh, um, we're going to make, there's going to be a big, big coming out for that, you know, that we're going to show that off. And uh, there's, you know, the, amongst, I think it's mostly amongst the volunteers, but we keep sitting there. Wouldn't it be nice to have a B-24 sitting around over there on the <laughs> other side of that? I mean, but I, 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 uh, I, I would hate for the CEO of the museum to hear me say that. I'd probably be tossed out the, the tomorrow morning. But I mean, it, Either it, that or he's going to go make an appointment with the president. Yeah, <laughs> yeah exactly. Just, yeah. It worked once. Yeah. Well, it was, it, it, I mean, that, all of us that have been there since 09 when we brought the 17 home, yeah. that's, that's the thing that's in our back. And we have, uh, you know, Tommy uh, Garcia and several oh, people yeah. out of, uh, we, we've talked to folks and they say in the United States of America, in the whole 50 states, there is probably, probably one B-24 left from parts. You know, right. there's one wing, there's only one of the, those special wings they had and, you know, and engines and stuff like that. So they said, if you, if you combed the whole country, <laughs> you could probably put one together. So that, you know, that, that's a pretty long shot, but that would be, that would be on a, a, a pretty big scale. Huh? Yeah. Uh, oh, excellent. Well, we will, uh, of course, in the uh, blog post that accompanies this podcast, we'll post a link to the museum and make sure people know how to find you and uh, can check it out online. And then, uh, and then, like I hope to sometime soon, go go make a visit in person. Okay. So that's, that's uh, great. I look forward to taking you on a tour of the airport. Oh, that'll be fantastic. That's a miss on my part that I haven't been there yet, but, but uh, we'll make that happen. So with that, uh, Jerry, thanks again. 
for joining us. Uh, thanks to everybody out there listening. Thanks to all of you who give us the uh, great reviews on iTunes and elsewhere. Uh, you send us uh, wonderful comments and suggestions on these blog posts at inspire.ea.org. Keep the uh, comments and uh, and constructive criticism or otherwise coming to feedback at ea.org that always gets to us and uh, just keep it up we wouldn't be uh, able to do this if uh, if we didn't get the great responses to these episodes uh, that we do so with that we look forward to talking to you next time when you're cleared to land on the green dot <laughs>